Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from Ephesians chapter 6, the full armor of God. Um, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. This is God's word. You may be seated. I invite you to keep your Bibles open to uh, Ephesians chapter 6 inside of the announcement sheet. Uh, you probably already have found it, but if not, inside of the announcement sheet behind the, uh, the, the, the flyer that was in there for the children's recognition, baby recognition this morning, you'll find uh, an outline that you can use as we go through uh, the message this morning. Uh, we're going to pray, give you a second to, to get your Bibles open and to get out those, those uh, announcement sheets at the, or the, uh, the, the, uh, the handout for the sermon. You'll notice at the bottom there's, uh, there are questions for our small group. Most of, I think all of our small groups are meeting tonight, and uh, those questions are going to be a part of the discussion. So uh, make yourself aware of those as we, we get into the study this morning. Be ready to pre- and prepare to, uh, to speak and to share uh, your thoughts about that as we go to small groups tonight. Let's uh, join our hearts and bow our heads, and let's ask God to bless us. Father, we... We, we think about all of these children that, uh, that you have blessed our church family with. And we are grateful for the opportunities, Father, to, to be a part of the formation of the next generation of faith and the next generation of leaders and of ser- servants in this church family. And we pray that you'll bless us as a church to be humbled before you as we take on this incredible task of of helping these kiddos to understand what life is all about and what life is about is finding you at the very center of it and recognizing you not only as our creator and our savior but our king our lord our god and there is no other help us father to this end to be wise in the way that we speak the way that we act to be mindful of our own formation as disciples of Jesus of Nazareth as we we live each day in light of all of these truths. So as we we think about this text that Adrian has read for us this morning, we pray that that they not be just the kind of truths that become uh, merely intellectual and something that that is a a part of the, the information base, 
of your word, but that gets all the way down on the inside of us, that we see ourselves living in the way that Paul describes in this chapter. So to this end, give us eyes that see and ears to hear, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you'll remember that at the end of last week's sermon, we were actually in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20. We're skipping verses 21 all the way to Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 9. Not because they're important, but what I want to do is I want to do something a little bit different as we, we sort of close out this practical end of, of Ephesians is to go to this what is known as the armor of God passage. Very, very famous passage. It's something that we're going to spend some time talking about this morning. And then after we talk about what it means and what it's like to put on this armor of God in order to live our life, then we're going to go back to chapter 5 and beginning in verse 21, talk about where, you know, those, those fields, those battlefields where our faith is lived out on a daily basis. And for most of us, that's going to be in the relationship in our marriages of being godly people and disciples. It's going to be in the area of our families, children and fathers and mothers. And it's also going to be in the workplace. And so that's how we're going to end up uh, finishing out the book of Ephesians is to go to chapter 6 now, talk about the, the, the armor of God, and then go back and end over uh, several weeks what it means to wear that armor in those really particular uh, and individual and personal battlefields that we face every day. Now, begin with a question. question is this. Do you know the full extent of diplomatic immunity and what it is? Well, diplomatic immunity is a form of legal immunities for diplomats and uh, embassy workers who are representing their country in foreign nations. And usually what it means is that uh, these, these folk... Uh, never have to have their bags checked. If there's something that takes place in the country where there might be prosecution, they're usually never prosecuted. If it's a terrible enough crime, usually what happens is they're expelled. So for a diplomat to be jailed means that there is a very severe conflict between the host nation, where that embassy is located, and the nation that that ambassador represents. Now notice how Paul describes the state he is living in when he writes to the church in Ephesus. He says down in verse 20, say it with me, I am an ambassador in chains. I am an ambassador in chains. Now at the end of, of chapter 5, or excuse me, at the end of this, of this, test, uh, this text in chapter 6, he describes the reason why. There is that kind of conflict between that the nation that he finds himself in and the nation or the kingdom that he represents. Look at verse 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So the reason he is in chains is because there is a severe conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. Now, we're at the end of the book, one of the commentators, a fellow by the name of Ben Witherington, I've, I've talked about some of the things, I think very insightful things that he's written about in his commentary on Ephesians. He says when you have in the ancient world a piece of, of um, oral rhetoric or an oral text, and Paul knew that this letter would be read orally, everyone would hear the words being read as this letter was being read to the church, the last salvo or the last big shot that you're making is usually the most important thing because it's probably going to be the thing because it's last the thing that is most remembered 
Now, let's step back just for a second from Ephesians chapter 6, and let's, let's think about what it is that Paul is doing in this letter. You'll remember the first three chapters, they just sort of soar theologically. I mean, Paul gets us up in the atmosphere. We're 5,000, 10,000 feet above earth, and he's helping us to see and to understand and to be inspired by what it is that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit has done. He says that, you know, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, which means that there's nothing that you and I need to flourish and to thrive spiritually as a disciple of Jesus that's being withheld from us. He also says that in one of the things that God does is that he chooses us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. And not only that, he predestined us, which means that he's shaping us to be a part of his family. And all of that to the praise of his glory. And then he switches over to what God the Son has done. And in in him, through his blood, we have redemption. Which means that what feels like enslavement to sin, and really is, theologically speaking, and and, and spiritually, it's, it's, it's literal, has ended. We have been bought out of that slavery by the blood of Christ. Not only that, but we have received forgiveness for all of our sins. I mean, you could just spend all day thinking about, I mean, you can just make a list of all the things you've been forgiven of, right? And then he gets to the Spirit. And the Spirit is about authenticating us, that we truly are believers, that we are God's children, that we're disciples, that we're saved, that there's a room in God's house for us. And not only that, that Spirit that seals us has also been deposited in us like a guarantee or earnest money. It's a deposit that's guaranteeing All of the promises that God has ever made in Christ are going to come true or God is going to lose his Holy Spirit. Just like we would use whatever money we lay down on a house as earnest money. And for God to lose his Holy Spirit means that he ceases to be God. Everything comes true in Christ. But then we get to the second chapter and it's all about being saved by grace. It's not something that we earn for ourselves. It's not anything that we could ever buy or create for ourselves. It's something that's been created for God that we receive as a grace, that we receive as a gift, that all human beings, because that's true, are leveled and on the same playing field because of the cross. There's no high and mighty and low and, and, and in the mud. All people are the same when it comes to this kind of this kind of reality, this sinful reality that we all share. And the cross is something that we need, and that's what levels all of us, which means that all of us can be united in the cross of Christ. And not only that, the church, in the way that we relate to one another, in the way that we take care of each other and love each other, the way that we worship God this morning, that becomes a window that the invisible world, that dark world, is able to look through that window, into the church to see the activity and the love and the worship and all of that inside of this church and all churches of God and be able to recognize in that their own defeat. And then at the end of chapter 3, he says, you know what, this is just really heady stuff. You need, I, I want to teach you how to pray in order to have an experience of something that you can never understand. And so Paul teaches us to pray in such a way that we get a supernatural help to understand the greatness and the height and the depth and the width and all of that of the love of God that surpasses our knowledge. And then he gets into chapter 4. 
And throughout the rest of the book, he's trying to be very, very practical and teach us on a, you know, where the rubber hits the road level, how we're supposed to live each day in light of all of those truths. Now, one of the dangers would be, man, that's really great stuff. That's, that's something to celebrate. The church has been planted on planet Earth, and all we have to do now is just celebrate. But according to Paul, nothing could be further from the truth. Remember that three times in this letter, he reminds them not only of all of these great things that are happening, but what specifically is happening to him. Go back to chapter 3 and verse 1. The prisoner of Christ. Then go to chapter 3, verse 13. I ask you, therefore, not to be what? Discouraged because of what? my, say it with me, sufferings which are for your glory. And then we get to chapter 6 and verse 20, and he's an ambassador. He says the same thing in his, his correspondence to the church in Corinth, that there were all ambassadors, uh, uh, compelling people to believe the gospel. But he says, I'm an ambassador, but I'm not a typical ambassador. I'm an ambassador in chains. Now, everything that Paul has written up to this point is an absolute truth. Paul's joy at the gospel and the effect that it has on the lives of people are true, but they come in the teeth of continuing sorrow and wickedness and human corruption. It's coming true, but it's in the context of thorns and thistles. God's work, as he so eloquently has described it in the first three chapters of this this letter, God's work in the church takes place, but it takes place during chapter 5, verse 16, the days that are evil. And in those days that are evil, we encounter, chapter 6, verse 11, the devil's schemes, his methodeia, his his methodology, his, his, his strategies, his schemes. For Paul, a line has been drawn in the sand, and Paul is feeling the brunt of it as he plants churches throughout the world. And for Paul, he sees it, and it feels like to him, as he's sitting in a prison in chains, it feels like war. And he he uses the the metaphor of, of, of armor and of war to capture the attention of the readers of this letter. And he's not using the metaphor lightly. He's not using the metaphor of war because there's something glorious about war. He uses it because war is serious. War is serious. One of the reasons that this kind of war that he's talking about in Ephesians elsewhere in his writings is serious is because it is with a foe, with an enemy, that we cannot defeat on our own. He writes over in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, you know, there's really nothing to an idol, nothing at all. But in chapter 10 of that same letter, just two chapters over, he says, you know, an idol is is empty, an idol is nothing, but you know what's behind an idol? A demon. And that's why he says, put on the armor of God. Now, uh, before we talk about the armor, let me say two things about it. Number one, the armor is for a defensive stance. The armor is for a defensive stance. The language is not about attacking. Three times he says, stand firm. In verse 11, verse 13, and verse 14, he says all three times, stand firm, stand firm. With this armor, you've got to stand firm. Verse 13, he talks about resisting the devil. 
Verse 18, he talks about being alert, being watchful, staying awake, knowing your duty, be alert. The second thing, not only is the armor in a defensive stance, but the armor is not only what God gives. Now think about this, this will blow your mind. This armor is not only what God gives, but it's what God wears. It's what he wears. It is his armor. It is the armor of, say it, God. It's his armor. He is giving you, as part of the spiritual blessings, every blessing in Christ. He talks about all the way back in chapter 1 at the beginning. One of those blessings is that he is giving you what you need to be victorious in this life we live, the life that he lived as disciples of Jesus in a world that has fallen, corrupted and full of thorns and thistles. He's trying to tell them and to tell us that the Christian life is not a defeated life. It is not a defeated life. This is an armor that should bring confidence and, and, and encouragement as we try to live that life as a disciple in light of all of the things that we face. And that's one of the reasons why Paul keeps saying over and over, take it on, put it on, take it up. You've got to put it on. You've got to take on the full armor of God. And one of the reasons he keeps emphasizing that is he's speaking from experience. He's not talking like somebody up in an ivory tower, some academic that's all theoretical to him, and it all makes sense, it's all theoretical and philosophical. No, he's speaking as a guy who has had his share of chains wrapped around him and imprisonments. He's speaking from the experience of one who lives in the armor of God because of the constant battle with the kingdom of darkness. So, very quickly, we're going to go through what it is that he describes. Now, all of these could, could have you know, a whole year's worth of sermon on their own. Don't worry, we're going to get it all covered this morning. Number one, belt of truth. Some of the old translations, like the King Jimmy, says, uh, gird up your loins. It's talk, another way of saying, a Mark Absher way of saying, would girdle up your loins. In the ancient world, what we, you would do is if you needed to move fast and quickly, is you would take all that low flowing robe stuff and you would take it and fold it and stick it down into your belt in order that you could move without tripping. Now in reality, you can't do anything else or next without doing this. And that's one of the reasons why Paul starts with the belt of truth. The truth is the foundation for everything. Now, with that said, let me ask you a personal question. Do you allow God's truth to become embedded in the deepest part of your reality in order that they become the filters or the grids by which you see and experience everything? You know, my friends, um, I've said this before, I'll say it again. The reason we come to Bible classes is not necessarily for the coffee, even though the coffee's great, tongue-in-cheek, or even primarily for the fellowship. You know why we come to Bible class? It's to be challenged by God's Word. We come to God's Word to be challenged. So how is it that, that Paul deals with the chains and the sufferings. Well, take note, for instance, of chapter 8 and verse 18 of Romans. He says, I consider that our present suffering, he's thinking about what it is that he's going through, 
that they're not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You see, Paul's been thinking a lot about the glory that's going to be revealed in us. And he's thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. He's prayed about it. He's thought about it. He's prayed about it. He's contemplated it. He's meditated it until it got all the way down in the center of him and it melted him. And then he laid it aside or next to all of the sufferings that he's going through. And he says, you know what? I don't care what I go through. I don't care what happens to me. It's nothing compared to the glory that's going to be revealed in me. And so he can write to a church in Ephesus and say, listen, I don't want you to be discouraged because of what I'm suffering. Paul thought about all of it, the glory, heaven, relationship, the feasts. He thought about it and meditated on it until it took the teeth out of every setback and challenge and discouragement and disappointment. Number two, breastplate of righteousness. Think about a metal plate over your heart that's protecting it from foreign objects trying to invade and pierce it. Righteousness is about being accepted. Acceptability. It's about rightness. It's about meeting the standards. And every human being needs this. Think about it this way. Back in 1982, Ellen and I went and picked out an engagement ring. She had it sized on the day that we had sort of planned. It was a Saturday in Abilene, Texas. Uh, in the spring, uh, I was supposed to give her the ring and ask her to marry me and all of that. Except that I decided when I picked up the ring, ha, 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 I'll tell her that it's not ready. And so she's pretty upset, as you can imagine, about that. And so I say, well, listen, to make it up to you, let's go to the best restaurant in Abilene, Texas, which at the time was the Red Lobster. And Ellen is a shrimp scampi-aholic. I mean, that is... That is her red lobster dish forever and ever. So we do that. We drive over to Will Hare Park, starting to uh, get into the evening, and that's when I asked her to marry me. And she said yes. In light of all that, she said yes. And next thing you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I knew she was going to say yes, but now that she said yes, this is really an amazing thing because she knows everything at, up to that point about me, and yet she has accepted me. She's accepted me. And I leaned in to give her a kiss, and she punched me in the arm. And she said, you jerk, why did you lie to me about the ring? <laughs> Which, by the way, didn't really happen. Uh, but, I, but, I did, but the happiness was true. She didn't, she didn't punch me. She'd be upset if I told you that. Notice 2 Corinthians chapter 5. She's not here, so I can say whatever I want, right? <laughs> Except she might be streaming. Sorry, honey. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Satan will assault your understanding of being accepted by God. Are you really saved? Did Christ really pass his righteousness to you? And if you do not have that breastplate that protects your heart, Satan will strike you. Number three, ready feet. What was the footwear to a Roman soldier? like it is to us. It's about traction. It's about protection. It's about mobility in order to move when you need to move and to move where you need to move. In other words, when you have the right kinds of shoes on, you're not going to get outflanked. You're not going to get boxed in. And because of the gospel, we have peace with God. We have a peace because we have been redeemed and forgiven and saved and sanctified. And knowing that to be true gives our feet the ability to grip the soil of heaven when the temptation is to slip. Because we have peace with God, the war is over. 
even though the battles of darkness will continue. Number four, shield of faith. Picture a really big shield made of wood and covered in leather. Right before the battle, they would take it, they would dip it in the lake or dip it in troughs of water, soak it up where it would, it would be able to, it would get really, really heavy. But when these flaming arrows were shot into it, it would, it would quench it. Now, the really interesting thing here is he could have said arrows. He says flaming arrows, right? It's a curious thing that that's what he references. You, you know, they were both. And it's one thing to see an arrow in a comrade and your, and your comrade go down, shot with an arrow. It's terrible, but it's another thing altogether when you see him go down in flames. That's horrific. Now, I don't think that the arrows are about doubts. I think the arrows are about suffering. A suffering has been and will be into the second coming of Jesus one of the greatest threats to the Christian faith. And the shield of faith is what stops the arrows, the flaming arrows of suffering from penetrating not only the shield but our life. It, it's looking to God when those flaming arrows approach. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us and eternal glory. There's that word glory again. That far outweighs them all. Number five, helmet of salvation. A lot of people live in the world like lightning bugs. They have their, their headlight on backwards. And they keep lighting up what's behind them, which is sort of a way of saying they keep living in the past. To, to be saved means that you have a different future. Your future is going to be different. And as Paul says, it's glorious and wonderful. And having that, he that helmet of salvation means that you keep your head in the battle. Number six, sword of the Spirit. You know the old cliche about a guy who brought a knife to a gunfight? It means that you are completely unprepared for the fight that you've entered into if, you, if they, he has a gun and you have a knife. And that's why most of the time the fight is lost, completely outmatched. But having the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, means that you saturate your mind with the Word of God until the truths become second nature. The Word of God saturates you until it routes your anger. The Word of God decapitates your impatience. The Word of God dominates your lusts and your greed. The Word of God pierces your hatreds and your malices. That's why every day you're saturating heart and mind and soul with the Word of God. And then number seven, and we're done. I knew you guys did not think that I would be done by 1130, but we did it. Let me give you two reasons why we need to be a prayerful people. And there's a lot of things to be said about prayer, right? As we've seen in chapter 3, we need God's help to have a profound, life-changing experience of the love of God that surpasses knowledge. That's number one. Number two, it is possible to not be changed by the truths of God's Word. It's possible to not be changed by the truths of God's Word. That's one of the reasons why we pray for open hearts and minds. Why is it that I pray, let us have ears that hear 
and eyes that see every time, whether you're in a Bible class or sermon, whatever it might be. Why do we pray that? It's because it's about opening our entire life up to God's Word in order for that sword to be sharp and something that we know how to use when it comes to all the things that we're going to face in this life. We're going to sing another song of praise right now, a praise to God. And one of the things that I want us to do is to think about our own life. You know, if you're a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, you have every blessing in Christ that you need to be able to flourish and to thrive and to become like Christ. And everything that you do, everything that you think, and, every, and all the ways that you react and respond to the things around you. You have a way to live in spite of all of the things that happen to you that are negative and bad and dark and in a valley and are terrible and horrific and painful. You have a way to live with those things in which the glory, in which the... the the presence of God in which all of the blessings that come because of Christ far outweigh all of that stuff. And that's why we put on that armor. And maybe you've not been putting on all the armor. And we need to do business with that. To those that have not committed themselves to Christ, I, 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 I want to say as the minister that you probably listen to every week, I want to say to you this. Please listen carefully. You're fighting a battle that you will never win on your own. You just won't. Every time you think that you've conquered something over here, something else pops up over here. You will never get to a place where you will ever earn it, you will ever achieve it, where you will ever be able to get the glory or the acclaim for it because as soon as you conquer one area, there's going to be another one that pops up. It's an endless cycle of cutting down the thorns and the thistles. The only way... For you to find a different kind of life is to find the kind of life that's in Christ Jesus. And that's where you find forgiveness, that's where you find redemption, that's where you find, that's where you find blessing, that's where you find solidarity with the Creator and the possessor of the heavens and the earth. It is in Christ that you find the love that you've always looked for. It's in Christ that you find the relationship that you've always longed for. In Christ it's where you find the healing that binds up every wound that you have ever experienced, that is where it's at. And we want to give you an, an opportunity this morning to, to, to put on Christ in baptism. To be able to say, by the time everyone leaves this morning, that I am today, right now, a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth who has received every spiritual blessing in Christ in order to live a life to live a life that is beyond description because the love surpasses knowledge. And if that describes you this morning, we want you to come down to the front. Some of our shepherds are going to be down here to receive you. Let's stand and let's praise God together. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus.